0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to the New Books in Literary Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Brit Edelin, and I'm here today with Dora Zhang. She is, um, she is the author of the book we are discussing today, Strange Likeness, Description and the Modernist Novel. Dora, it's so great to have you here today. Um, This book was a really awesome read and really enlightening, and I'm excited to talk to you about it today.
0: Well, thanks very much for having me.
1: So before we get started talking about the book, um, I just want to ask you about your personal background. You know, how did you come to literary studies? um, And then also, how did you come to writing this book, um, both in kind of where the inspiration came from, um, as well as like the actual process of writing itself
0: um sure so um well i uh, i i studied philosophy um as an undergraduate and then um i um uh and in my undergraduate degree i mostly was you know studying kant and and hegel and post-kantian um uh german philosophy and kind of 20th century continental philosophy and then um, so everybody said you know you should apply to graduate school, you should apply for a PhD in comparative literature, because that's a place that will be more hospitable to your interests. Um, And so I did, but then, and I I had always been interested in literature as well. Um, But then when I got to graduate school, and I went to a comparative literature program, um, I sort of made this strange like left hand turn, um, into, uh, early 20th century analytic philosophy. Um, I took a class with Anne Banfield, who is a, um, uh, was a, a professor of English, um, at Berkeley. Actually, she then, um, retired, but she was visiting at Princeton when I was in my first, uh, my first year of graduate school. And she taught a class on linguistics and literature. And this got me really you know, interested in and excited about, um, early 20th century um, analytic philosophers like Russell, like Bertrand Russell and Frege and um, Wittgenstein. I had also studied Wittgenstein in, in um, undergrad. So it was this strange kind of trajectory. And then I kind of um, made my my way sort of back to some kind of middle ground, I guess, between these two poles. Um, so that was kind of where the initial... Um, that was really where I started. Was kind of at the end of the book with um, there's a the the last chapters on Virginia Woolf and um, Bertrand Russell and William James and you kind know, of these strange um, you know units of of language these strange words these indexicals like this and here and now um, that I'm suggesting mark the limits of description where that or that are the name of the indescribable. Um, and so that's where I began, you know, it really actually kind of, it was sort of in reading about the kind of different, the, the sorts of um, the, the ways of knowing that could be encoded in different parts of language. That was kind of the initial sort of intuition or, or idea. I think that um, that, that sparked the the project. And then, um, uh, you know, then it kind of developed from there. I started thinking about description and it really also just began with this basic experience that I kept having of just not being able to describe things, you know? Um, and uh, in, in many cases, sort of the more I wanted to describe something or the more kind of specific, the idea was in my mind, the harder it was to to communicate it to someone else. And, um, so, you know, I just kind of started there and, and then I started thinking about description more broadly in, um, you know, studies of the novel and theory of the novel. And I realized that this was just, um, this topic that had actually not received a ton of attention, even though we really take it for granted all the time and we invoke description all the time, but it's not, You know the kind of focus. It's not the focal point of a lot of critical studies um, of the novel, at least. Um, And so, you know, I also then kind of came across works in the history of science, like the work of Loring Daston, Daston and Peter Gallison's book *Objectivity* and their kind of outlining of different, um, you know, regimes, different epistemic virtues, um, and you know, this just. Uh, and Lorraine Daston also has an essay on um, shifts in modes of, of description in natural history in the early modern period. And this just made me realize um, that, you know, first of all, just the kind of scope and the heterogeneity of descriptive practices, and that this was also, of course, true in um, in novels, and that, you know, that there might be very different modes of description in different kinds of novels in different periods, different, perhaps different genres as well. Um, and that, you know, all of this was deserving of attention and, um, might, might have a lot to tell us about, you know, um, kind of questions of perception of knowledge of social relations of, um, affect, um, which I kind of came to, which became more prominent later on as I revised, um, and so the project just kind of grew from from there. Uh, and this was so it was my dissertation, which then I revised over the course of um, my uh, over the course of five six years um, that uh, post PhD in my in my job.
1: That's so interesting. I can definitely see the interest in in the early twentieth century analytic philosophy. Um, you bring up William or James and Russell. Um, and they're really interesting provocations, and we'll get to that in a minute. But before we do that, um, I want to just kind of set a baseline um, definition, um, <laughs> which is funny because you just you just talked about kind of one of the, the points that the end of your book brings up, which is that um, the limit of description is not actually um, things that are beyond our knowledge or things that are just too hard to describe they're actually something that's really close Um, but i think before we get into all of these discussions of description can you give us um i guess a description of description or a definition of description um and i think it might be helpful to relate it back to to kind of polls that we can see being drawn out in both your book and then the history of philosophy and literary studies, which would be description versus narration, um, and then description Mm -hmm. versus um, definition. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So, I mean, I think that's one of the really tricky things about Um, description is that, you know, uh, as I was working on this, um, one of the really challenging pieces of the project was just kind of um, delimiting its scope. Because, you know, when you ask what is a description, you know, the, the answer sort of, you know, the only answer that seems possible in some ways is kind of everything or what isn't a description, mm-hmm. you know, everything has, um, uh, some descriptive component. Um, and, you know, part of the, um, um, I think what someone like Wittgenstein reminds of, reminds us of, which I, I talk about in the book is that, um, you know, that descriptions can take many different forms. So he says we tend to think of descriptions as, you know, word pictures that hang on a wall, but um, an engineer's blueprint can be a description. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, um, I, I'm not sure that he uses the example of a musical score, but maybe even we could think of a musical score, but certainly instructions or field guides, you know, um, tourist guides, all of these things are are descriptions. Um, but for my purposes, um, uh, I, as you say, I think I kind of take the, this core distinction that has been, um, that we see in the, the history of um, the novel, in, in novel theory, I should just say, um, or narratology, which is this distinction between narration and description. So description often gets defined in opposition to narration as. Um, as being about objects um, or or people or things that that extend in space, whereas narration is about um, uh, you know is concerned with the recounting of events and, and actions in time, um, and um, description also I think we is is typically sort of associated with. Um, attribution or predication um, it seems to have that function it, you know if you think of a paradigmatic description in a novel it's a, a description of a room or of a house or a person or maybe a landscape you know it's pointing out of you know, the features or the attributes of that object um, and often you know in ways I think, in, in our most recognizable sort of paradigmatic um, form which I think is taken from from uh, 19th century realism it often kind of breaks things down by predicates you know sort of, um, on over here it's this and then on the other side it's that um, you know and it might take the form of kind of uh, it might be naturalized by you um, a certain conceits like a character looking around a room or looking at a landscape. And then, um, you know, you kind of, it, it's sort of like a camera pan from like one, one side to the other, or, you know, it moves up and down. And Mika Ball, who's written on this, suggests that there are certain conventions uh, in realism like um sort of moving from from I think she suggests the the eyes like outward or the center of the face outward when it comes to the body or from top down or left to right so there you know there are all of these conventional codes that that govern um how a description works but um in any case that that uh distinction is one that I take um that I both um uh, you know investigate and try to uh, you know, move move beyond because I think that um, it's 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 something that has really limited our thinking about description um, this kind of opposition this really stark opposition to um, to narration but even though we also can't simply jettison it altogether and I think that's part of what makes it so tricky because you know as a reader, you you can see how, in Jeanette's example, you know the the house was had a white roof with green shutters. Um, I'm forgetting the exact um, the exact line. How that is different from something like, you know, the man walked to the table and picked up the knife. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a kind of intuitive distinction that I think makes sense, um, but at the same time, it's been a kind of ontologized, you know, so it sort of suggests that, that these, that narration versus description has different objects. And, you know, so one has to do with time, one has to do with space and it becomes ontologized. And I think that, that distinction, um, has been limiting. Um, and then as you say in the kind of towards the later part of the book, um, the, another important distinction is that between description and, um, Naming is one one word for uh you know what what its opposite is naming um I think you use the term definition um but it's a, a and that's a kind of um way of sort of of just referring to something directly um without kind of reference to its uh its predicates which which description does so that would be something like Bertrand Russell's. Um, uh, definition of description versus, um, naming. Um, and, uh, but I think it's, it's just a description is also, I think it's worth noting, um, has all, has just often been, um, Philippe Amon, a French critic, uh, calls it the, the, um, uh, methodological zero degree. Uh, you know, it's kind of the other to, um, narration in novel theory but then also in you know critical practices or in certainly in you know debates about reading now it's the opposite of something like interpretation but also explanation. Um, and also I think in a different way, performance, um, I don't really deal with performance at all. Um, but the descriptive and the performative are, are also, um, often opposed. And in each of those cases, it's kind of the unmarked member or it's the sort of neutral, um, member, um, of a kind of, of a pair. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that makes it actually very, very interesting, but also very challenging to, to think about.
1: Yeah, and I think that's definitely reflected um, in, I think, the the title of your introduction is that ugly, that clumsy, that incongruous tool. And I think, um, as you've kind of mentioned, all of these things go into the, what you call the um, universal devaluation of description. Um, and I think you're really hitting on something that it's it's so hard to describe what description is without pulling it apart and making narration something so opposite to it. Um, And I think what I want to get into now um, is something that is very, very much what the book is about. And that's modernism's kind of interventions into description. Um, And so this book is subtitled Description in the Modernist Novel, but you focus on three authors. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give us... um, a really quick little overview of what modernism's interventions are, as well as why um, why you chose these three writers—James, um, Proust, and Woolf—to um, kind of talk about what their descriptions are doing and how that how that changes how we can think about intervention or description.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So, right. And uh, this gives me the chance also to clarify. um, I mean, I I think I I said this somewhere in the book, too, that um, the the subtitle is description and the modernist novel, as you say. But obviously, this category of the modernist novel is a kind of um, fiction itself. And, you know, so much work in modernist studies has in the last couple of decades has been about Uh, expanding, you know, our sense of what, um, of modernism and of what belongs in modernism. Um, So, uh, you know, I I just kind of retained the modernist novel because I I was thinking description and modernist fiction, but then I didn't actually like the rhyme. So there are, and then I, I tried to think of all these other ways of um, all these other subtitles, and I, I couldn't come up with anything. So in the end, I just sort of left it. Um, but it's something that, you know, I kind of, um, uh, I, I'm glad to have a chance to you know, say to, to clarify. Um, so it is really focused on so, so the, the, the book um, kind of has two aims. And one is to um, you know, reinvigorate our thinking about description, about literary description, about novelistic description, um, and then the and and to do so, this is the second aim, you know, via this kind of um, this core um, set of 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 modernist um, authors to to say that you know these authors were actually interested in description um, and were doing interesting things with description, and that's you know, counterintuitive because. Um, Because we associate description so much with 19th century realism, novelistic description, again, um, with 19th century realism. And because these authors, many modernist authors themselves were very vocal, um, very vocally, you know, uh, disavowing, um, description as a kind of obsolescent, uh, aesthetic category or, or feature of the novel. Um, And that's where the term that clumsy, that ugly, that ugly, that clumsy, that incongruous tool comes from. That's Wolf's phrase in uh, Mr. Bennett Mrs. Brown. Um, And um, uh, so I think that I'm so I'm focusing on on them on these modernist authors, in part because there has been. Really, very, very little on on the question of description in modernism. I mean, as I say, we associate it really with realist fiction, um, and then it's sort of like, you know, well, what happens to it then in in the early twentieth century when all of these modernists are, you know, um, kind of self consciously, um, uh, you know, breaking with a, a realist tradition. Um, and I began actually by kind of suggesting, by by sort of arguing that that this really was a break and that they were really doing things that were, um, you kind know, of, uh, you know, really new. Um, and as I, you know, through the revision process and in conversation with others and feedback from others, I started to really realize that actually there was much more continuity than I, you know, had. Um, had realized which probably is also a feature of just modernists people who study modernists you kind of begin by really imbibing the whole like this is totally radical and and new you know discourse from from modernists themselves and then you're like oh it's actually you know um much more continuous in in a lot of ways um than than they were suggesting so Um, I focused on these authors because I think that they constitute a distinctive strain within modernist fiction um, that really actually inherits a kind of realist descriptive and and kind of empirical or empiricist even project um, uh, and of where, where description is about kind of, um, you know, delimiting the, um, the, the world but they do so, but they kind of take it up in and and, and in sort of torqued form. Um, so it's more of a. I think I came to kind of see it as more of a sort of um, as a kind of torquing or a a, a, a twisting or a kind of. Distortion, rather than um, uh, some kind of total break, um, and I so I think that so these are are this is a group that I, I see as really kind of inheriting a, a realist descriptive project, um, and so as also distinct from I think more um, from from the avant garde or from writers who are more um, kind of willing to break I think with um, with with that realist um, project, um, so I, uh, some, I think Stein and 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 um, uh, Joyce as well um, might belong to the the latter category. Um, so uh, so so that's one reason why I focused on on these authors. I think that they're they're also reading each other. I mean, Wolf is reading both James and Proust. Um, and I think she's really actually at the center of, of the novel, uh, sorry, of this, of my book. Um, uh, so I think they're, they're really concerned with the question of, of description and with what can be described and especially with what it means to describe things that, you know, are immaterial or, um, or, uh, um, you know, invisible, um, or intangible. Um, and uh, I think also the other reason for, for choosing these authors is that um, I'm also engaged with novel theory. Um, so the you know there's a chapter that discusses Lukács, um, uh, who whose essay narrate uh, or describe I think has been really very influential in, in our understanding of um, of description and its devaluation. And um, this tradition of novel theory, you know, is really kind of concerned. I mean, these are, is really concerned with a, with kind of, you know, now very canonical figures. Um, and so this was the other reason to kind of engage or to, to focus on this very canonical, um, you know, set of kind of high, high modernists. Um, and I think, you know, if I were to, you uh, in a continuation of the project um, or really what I hope, you know, will happen, which is that other people, you know, will find this useful in thinking about description in all kinds of, of other ways. Um, You know, I think it would be uh, really interesting to think about how this um, ramifies in, in other genres or, or in other authors.
1: Yeah. I am really interested in what you kind of brought up with um, this little grouping of, authors that they're kind of pointed towards something that's um, immaterial or invisible or something that you can't really see. And given Description's focus on sight, it forces them to do really incredible things with Description. Um, So I want to turn over to um, the three authors themselves in these three chapters, which um, comprise the bulk of the book. And starting with James, you have the chapter James Ayres, and it's about James and atmosphere. Um, and I, I love this. There's a little bit on in the just at the beginning of your chapter on him where you talk about how um, the Jamesian vibrations are related to what we would call today as vibes. Um, that's such a ubiquitous term, and I think it it really captures how, you know, you can walk into a room and there's an atmosphere, there's a sense, there's something going on between people, but you can't really, you can't see it, but you know it's there. And you write that it's, um, quote, clearly felt and information rich. Um, And I I mean, I just want to give you the space to, you know, how did James, how does James craft atmosphere? And what is he doing with description to um, call attention to something that's invisible, but has such intense ramifications for, you know, every space that we enter.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this chapter began with just my observation of just the James's continual invocations of the air and of things being in the air. Um, I mean, it's just, once you start looking for it, it's kind of crazy how it's just all over his writing. Um, both his critical writing um, and in the prefaces and essays, as well as in the novels, the late novels, especially um, themselves. Um, and I just, you know, this this chapter just tries to take seriously that James is interested in describing what is in the air. Um, and so I think that, I so I'm arguing that his attention, first of all, that he is, that he's really attentive to atmospheres. Um, and the, these are atmospheres, you know, the atmosphere of, um, of a room when you walk into it or of an interaction um, of a situation or a conversation or um, the atmosphere, you know, of a kind of, a, of a dynamic between two people or a group of people, which is of course his subject, right? Relations. Um, and so um. I think uh, I'm suggesting that that he's really interested in um, that his descriptive attention is really trained on atmospheres, um, and th- in this way, he kind of inherits what I'm just calling a kind of the Balzacian social hermeneutic descriptive project. Um, Balzac, for so many uh, you know, theorists and and also novelists, including James himself, is kind of the um the paradigmatic describer as it were um you know he often and and for many he also sort of goes overboard um and you know kind of describes too much but so much of of balzac's descriptions are about material objects um you know they're about you know items of clothing and furniture and you know these really detailed catalogs of like rooms and 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 houses that really locate them very precisely in a kind of social space um and so I'm suggesting that, that James is actually, you know, that he doesn't abandon that kind of balzation descriptive project, but that he is interested in, you know, not so much in describing like people's physiognomies or their belongings or their items of clothing, but something like, like the atmospheres that attend them um, or in the, the places that they dwell in, and, you know, their parties, um, their interactions and so on. Um, And so he's, so what does it mean to kind of bring this really elusive dimension of social experience within the descriptive ambit of the novel? Um, He, I think that this is one way of, of understanding the, um, the charge that, that James under describes, you know, which is another way of, of, um, of saying that he's vague because he is, right? and it's often hard to know um, not just what's going on, but it's hard to kind of visualize um, what you know his his characters look like or what the what what their houses look like, um, you know, even when he does describe their houses. Uh, so I think that there's a kind of shift to this more kind of immaterial dimension of social experience, and that. Um, is I think we can also see him as taking, as arguing that it it take that it's something that needs to be taken seriously. Um, that it is, you know, uh, that it's a, a site of of information for those who can kind of perceive it or can can read it. Um, and it requires this kind of embodied, you know, um, uh, mode of of perception. I mean, I th- again, that's also one of the things that's really hard about atmospheres, about talking about atmospheres. And i you know, ended up writing a separate article on atmospheres in just sort of everyday life. Um, and, you know, I think it's really hard to to say, like, how do you know what what an atmosphere is or what the atmosphere of a place is. Um, you know, it's really hard to kind of break it down, to analyze it in the sense of breaking it down into its component parts. Um, but at the same time it's all it's often really, you know, strongly, um, strongly felt. Um, and in James, his most sensitive, those who are most sensitive to, um, to the atmosphere, uh, or to the air and what it holds, um, are, are very often, um, women. Um, and so there's also a kind of gender dimension to, um, this insistence on, um, you know, on taking atmospheres, uh, Seriously, um, and then I, I think that it it gives him too a kind of vocabulary, a, a kind of metaphoric, um, a, a metaphorical or or a sort of image repertoire for thinking about um, or for figuring relations, social relations between people. And I also draw on on Georg Simmel's um, you know idea of microscopic molecular um, uh, relations um, and. Uh, of social relations and of, the and of, as, as having particular forms, like, um, you know, f- um, like with, with one another, for instance, um, uh, with one another against others. I think that's one of his examples, which you can see in a variety of different, um, different kind of uh, venues, um, which has different, you know, he quotes, he says, kind of different content, like you can see that form in, Both a church and an art school. Those are his examples. Um, but it, you know, has this, this same form. Um, and so I think that's that kind of formal interest in, 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 uh, delimiting or, you know, just describing maybe, um, relations, um, is something that, that we kind of know that James has. And I think, um, atmosphere and the sort of vocabulary and the, the, um, image of atmospherics, of, of spatial inhabiting, um, gives him a, a, a means to, um, to figure these kinds of, of relations. And so also recast some of his very well-known, um, spatial images, like for, like even the house of fiction, um, for instance.
1: Yeah. I was really interested in what you just said about, um, he's not, he's not necessarily just breaking down and doing something new he's there's an establishment of an almost emotion of um, expansion that you know description can talk about these physical things in a room but it also can talk about something that's something that is in the room because everything else is already in the room Um, Mm. and and uh, the question of relation is on is in every chapter it's on every page and I was really I was really intrigued by all of what you say about relations and how people can charge a room um and i think i think i want to move from there into this idea of relation and take it into proust
0: um Mm -hmm.
1: because you talk about how um in the introduction when you compare your chapters that um you write if james atmosphere's Turn description toward relations that hovered uncertainly in the air. Proust amplifies this by using analogies. Can you can you kind of explain what you mean by the amplification um, and kind? I guess the difference between what James is doing and what Proust is doing with his um, analogical description.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I think one of the the features of. Um, um, Proust, uh, and, you know, this is a little bit like when I started um, tracking these instances of air in James, and I just found them all over the place. Once I started really um, tracking Proust's analogies, uh, I just realized they were, um, you know, even more you know, ubiquitous than these invocations of air of in James, that they're they they really kind of make up so much of the text, um, and obviously metaphor is really well known in um, as being important for Proust uh, in his own aesthetic theory. Metaphor is kind of the you know the style that um, you know is able to uh, link past and present and to kind of bring them together. Um, and I was interested in tracking something a little different, um, which, and so I'm calling it analogy rather than, um, metaphor, which is just these, which is, a, and it has a kind of broader, I think, scope. Um, and I was particularly interested in just these kind of very ordinary passing, um, uh, comparative figures that just, you know, if you really, if you pick up any page of of um, In Search of Lost Time, you'll just find, um, you know, so many of these. It's kind of just, they're often referred to in, they're just used in passing to kind of evoke, you know, really every every kind of, really anything that is described, you know, it's it can't be done without, without, comparison to something else, um, without, you know, a kind of figure like, like, like come or, you know, um, just as, or, you know, so when this thing, you know, um, uh, uh, so, so, um, other constructions like that. So it's, um, I think it's just a kind of, so I think it, it, I was tracking something more, um, Specific, I think in the case of James and, and atmospheres and his interest in figuring these, you know, social relations and in Proust, I think it expands into a, it encompasses not just social relations, although I, I do spend some time looking at, I think the descriptions of, um, of society life, you know, across the, the, the different um, classes in bourgeois salons and also aristocratic ones, which I think are really the site of so much of his, um, his wit and his humor. Um, uh, But it also just, you know, it really like encompasses, um, Everything and the the kinds of connections that he draws can be so um, surprising and and sometimes you know so he writes to friends to ask them um, you know uh, do you know like in the field of mathematics is there a um, is there a kind of analogous phenomenon for this thing that I want to describe um, so he really draws from a, a, a very wide field. Um, and it, it just kind of becomes it seems to become a, a more of a like a kind of habit or a sort of um, uh, maybe in a uh, maybe also a kind of um, uh, an addiction or a sort of like um, a tick like something that he can't stop doing like and nothing can be referred to without you know being compared to something else um so um yeah so I think that's that's kind of one of the, so I I see it as a sort of both a kind of um, a a continuation and a kind of expansion in, in the case of, of Proust.
1: Yeah. And in Proust, um, I've read Proust and it's, it's such a interesting and exciting phenomenon of reading Proust to, you know, be going down a page and then you get that you get that like or just as and you go on a four or five or however many page excursion into Mm -hmm. some completely other topic and um so this relates to what you were talking about with um how narration um kind of propels us forward whereas description kind of takes us out of the temporality of the novel or the plot itself um Mm -hmm. and i think what i what i want to focus on or in this question is you in this chapter focus so heavily on not these, you know, the grand moments of Proust, not the, not the Madeleine scene, but in these everyday descriptions or these everyday likenings. Um, mm-hmm. And I think something that I was con I constantly wrote in the margins was everything is because it is like something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about kind of how, Proust uses the concept of likening or what you would call likening to establish identity or established existence in the world and um, kind of a a really central part of subjectivity and being.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And here I was really aided by Jonathan Flatley's book, um, Like Andy Warhol, um, where he talks about warhol's project of liking so so um uh so flatly is more interested in um liking than likening um but i found kind of this idea of a project uh but but he was also interested in in warhol's sort of likes um in the sense of kind of creating you know a, a, um doubles or, you know, um, or, or sort of substitute figures or series, um, and obviously very different figures or very different types of, of works, um, Proust and, and Warhol, but, um, although maybe we just, like, I would love to read more about, like, someone thinking about Proust and Warhol together, but, um, uh, uh yeah, I, so, so I think just thinking about this idea of, um, of liking, or you know, for me it was thinking about likening as a kind of sustained project, um, as something that that you know um, can be, uh, I think, really a sort of critique of of identity, but that isn't about just about difference, um, you know, but but rather. Um, and that seems kind of strange, right? A critique of identity or a sort of resistance to identity through likeness rather than through difference. But um, you know, this for me is one of the interesting things about kind of an explicit uh, comparative about comparative constructions that retain the um, the re- that retain the comparative, um, uh, which you know we in English would maybe call a simile. Um, but it, it seems to more explicitly and I you know, I'm still actually a little bit unsure of like I, I brought this up constantly in like conversations where that had anything to do with this question about whether people just like poll people randomly on whether they thought there was like a really important difference between metaphor and simile. Um and, you know, everyone was like, I don't know, I don't I don't really care. Um but I so I feel like I never quite um came to a conclusive, um, uh, you know, answer to this. I, I sort of just focused on um, these constructions that that contain, I mean, my intuition is that there is a difference and that that retaining the construction is really important and, and obviously like foregrounds. Um, and Stephanie Burt talks about this too in a really kind of totally fascinating essay Um called like um uh that it you know really foregrounds the constructedness of this figure you know so it you can't really quite absorb it in the same way as a, a metaphor um you know it kind of calls attention to its own you know uh to its activity of of likening um and it, it but i don't know if it's a question of if it's really ultimately a difference of degree or if it's a difference of kind. Um, but uh, I think that it does, you know, it does a, a, an analogy, you know, really does um, uh, uh, play on both identity and difference. I mean, it kind of, you know, um, it, it says it's, this is like that, but also that it's, it's, but by, you know, retaining the, the like, you know, you understand that it. it it's not that thing, you know, it's just like it. So to be just like something is also to be precisely not that thing. Um, And Proust through his kind of really like multiplying force of, of his analogies, I think um, kind of evades the kind of pinning down of, of say definition um, or of identity by this proliferating series of likes and of, of likenesses And I think this also just came from, for me, realizing that um, I think that this is really one of the key features of Proust's descriptive precision. Um, So, you know, Benjamin says in uh, the essay on Proust that Proust's pointing finger is unequaled. um, And... uh, you know, and, and like many readers of Proust have pointed this out, right? And I think that it's it's because he is sometimes uh, very often, he kind of, he, he just finds the perfect analogy, um, something that is so kind of evocative of this, like very precise, you know, shade or nuance or feature of some particular phenomenon. It might be, you know the way in the in one of the examples I discussed from the uh, um, the the little um, the little uh, uh, clan at uh, Madame Verdurin's salon. You know, it's just the way that someone kind of uh, tries to chime in with uh, and you know to agree with an aesthetic judgment that he doesn't quite understand, but in order to fit in, you know. So it can be these really precise kind of. Um, aspects of appearance, but that you know contains so much information and that tell, reveals so much about you know, who that character is, what the environment of that you know group is, what their dynamics are, what you know aesthetic judgment means in this case, um, and you know sometimes his his analogies don't do that at all and they go on for so long or they're so like complicated that you completely lose the thread of what, you know, they're supposed to be about. But, um, I think very often they're, they're, they're really, um, they're, they're so keyed into some specific nuance or feature of, of, of some phenomenon that that is what accounts for their, um, their descriptive, uh, precision, so I think it's, so, so this, and I think this is true to just, I, I just observe this in kind of just normal conversation as well. You know, that um, often when you're able to, at least speaking for myself, when I'm able to kind of find an analogy for something um, that's often a really, there's like a very satisfying feeling. I feel like, okay, I've, I've really conveyed it or when other people, you know, describe something with an analogy I find that and I I understand it and there's this like really satisfying kind of like click when, you know, you feel like, Oh yeah, I know exactly what, what that is. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I think analogies also just, you know, in a very kind of banal way, when you're, when you're talking about things that don't, you know, that, that aren't, don't have a kind of, that don't look like anything when you're not talking about sort of concrete material objects, um, you can't just describe its predicates, or at least it's not so, or its qualities. It's not so easy to do that. So um, you sort of have to have t- take recourse to analogies, and I think that's one of the reasons why we see such a proliferation of analogies and of other comparative constructions in um, in in modernist writers.
1: Yeah, that that sensation of um, satisfaction you get at finding the the perfect analogy is is so real especially or not especially um i would say also not even just finding it but but reading it as well and i think that's that's definitely something you bring up um both in the beginning in that in the second chapter as well as towards the end that idea that you know all of reading um as well as perhaps all of you know subjectivity or being is something that has to do with saying yes that's exactly how it feels and there's this there's not just a relation between characters in a novel, there's a relationship between the reader as well as the novel and the author. um, That I think is what you're saying is there's a, there's a central satisfaction of reading that is descriptive. And the idea that something in the text described exactly something that you don't think you could put into words. Um. So I wanna I wanna move on to um your last chapter or not your last chapter the second to last chapter on Wolf, um, and I think the 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 through line between Proust and Wolf is this idea of matching, um, and with Wolf you bring it up to, um, you open the chapter with who among us has not stumbled in trying to describe a feeling. And I think that's such an accurate question to ask about Wolf and to say that she does it so well and so often. Um, and you you talk about um, her, her work as someone who's doing a lot of affective attunement. Um, can you just kind of give us an overview of what you mean by um, what you call in this chapter as affective attunement and matching and perhaps how... Wolf's project relates to that, especially um, as you've mentioned. She's such a critic of description in her um, nonfiction works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So let me start with matching, actually, because this this reminds me of of something I of about both you know Proust, but also James. I mean, across the the um, the authors, um, which is that as I talk about analogy and you know that kind of that kind of feeling of um, satisfaction or that click of kind of, of accurately describing something um, part of what I'm interested in about which and which I call matching is um, a way to describe um, the a, a shift in in the standard of description, or of what counts as a description, or what it means to give a likeness of something. Uh, so, in the introduction, I use the example of James. Actually, he describes um, Adam Verver's face in the uh, in the Golden Bull as being like. Um, or is resembling a small room, you know, decent, a small, decent room, I think, um, clean, swept and bare furniture. Those, that's not the exact phrasing, but it's, it's like that. Um, and, you know, so I, I'm, I'm asking what does it mean for, you know, for Adam Verber's face to be like a, a small, clean swept room? You know, what does it mean to say that that's a description of a face, um, I think we kind of tend to think of description coming back to Wittgenstein's point about word pictures that hang on the wall. We tend to think of them as having this kind of standard of visual resemblance. Um, And of course, you know, what visual resemblance means in the case of language is, you know, determined by a set of generic conventions that we've learned. And I think these are really the conventions, you know, that we've inherited from, from realism about sort of like what a word kind of portrait or a word picture um, is, but I think that these that that these the writers that I'm looking at are are interested in a kind of different standard of um, of of resemblance um, or something that might not look like resemblance or that might not seem to us like resemblance, but which is aiming nevertheless at some kind of accuracy or some kind of precision. Um, and so matching is one word that I you know use to try to name or to describe um, that what that kind of relationship or what that skewed relationship of correspondence is between description and and its object. Um, but I think that's very much at play in the particular, analogies that that they use. Um, so I think that's true for for everyone. And I think it really comes to the fore though in the case of Wolf, because she is so concerned with describing feeling. And that is the the focus of the chapter on the first chapter on Wolf, which is the third chapter of the book, or is it the fourth? Um, uh, but the second to last chapter anyway. Um, and because feeling, you know, maybe even more so or at least as much so as as anything else, uh, I think more so than than anything else in many ways, can't be described except by analogy um, or, you know, except through kind of comparison. Um, and so, you know, it, it's these comparisons like um uh, the, and, and so it's actually something that we do in ordinary life all the time, you know, when we say that, like, oh, well, when he walked into the room, it was like a storm cloud descended or something like these are very immediately kind of intuitive and recognizable descriptions of what what that kind of atmosphere or what that feeling um, um, is like. Um And, uh, I think that, so I think she's, you know, especially concerned with the problem of describing feelings. And I think that her, first of all, that her own critiques of description, um, of, you know, especially, um, with Bennett as her target. I mean, I think there's a kind of like willful limitation of what description means in her critical remarks on, on description. Um, and I think she's actually, you know, uh, that there is a lot of description in her her own novels, although she, you know, call she might not call them such, um, and and I want to call them such because I think to think of you know descriptions of feeling or yeah um or you know um, atmospheres or these kind of relations between these homologies between um, really different uh, phenomena. To call them descriptions is to kind of help us see how um, how heterogeneous, you know, descriptive practices are, and it's to see it, it, it. helps us to see that that's operating even in you know even in in realist um, works that you know for the modernists were uh, were kind of paragons of, of description as you know the prose of things um, which they they. Uh, are are you know taking issue with or or want to take distance from, um, for their, and quite self consciously and kind of rhetorically for their for their own purposes, um, so I think she kind of really yeah willfully of you know, limits um, uh, the sense of what what description is in in her assessment, Wolf's assessment of of her predecessors, but that her own works are really interested in kind of especially interested in describing. Um, feelings. Um, and, um, I find this, I, have found really helpful the work of, of Daniel Stern, who is a, a psychoanalyst and, um, a developmental psychologist who's worked on affective attunement, what he calls affective attunement, which has to do with the sharing of an affect or of a feeling between, um, in his discussion, um, the parent and child, um, and in in his discussion, it's a kind of pre-verbal infant. So um, he's really interested more in affect behaviors. um, But his, his idea is that, um, you know, that, that in order to share an affect, um, that is to kind of enter into an affect with someone else. um, And, and so not just to kind of to, to tell them that you understand it, but to kind of share in it, which is what he calls affective attunement, um, that necessitates not imitation, but correspondence. Um, and specifically that means for him, um, uh, matching, you know, the kind of affect behavior that an infant has displayed, but in another mode. So, so this, uh, for him, this is, um, this is made possible by the fact that there are certain uh, that certain features uh, of of certain qualities that can be perceived across different perceptual modes. So, for instance, an intensity can be perceived both in the saturation of a color and in the you know say force of a gesture or the 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 uh, volume of a sound. Um, or the quality of a sound, intensity can be perceived in, in all of these, or, um, you know, or, or kind of, uh, um, a, a movement contour can be felt, you know, of kind of, of, of rising and, and, and falling say can be perceived, you know, in a gesture and the move, movement of an arm, but also in, a sound and and so on Um, and so these kinds of these perceptual qualities that can be perceived across different modes and he he really identifies and isolates um three of these but then which can be broken down into um six i think it's intensity um rhythm um contour i hope i'm remembering that right Um, uh, these, which can be perceived across, a, 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 you know, different perceptual modes, that is what allows for this kind of, um, you know, taking up of of, of, of behavior and then um, uh, transposing it in in a different um, mode. So in his example, for instance, a girl, you know, a little girl, I'm also now forgetting the exact uh, details of these examples, so I might be mixing them up slightly, but it's something like, a, you know, a little girl says, um, you know, kablam, kablam, and um, her mother. You know, instead of imitating her and saying kablam, kablam, her mother, you know, um, raises her arm and then lets it fall in a in a particular way that that matches the rhythm of the of the girl or the kind of the the contour that's suggested by her um, sound, but in this different mode, which is movement or gesture. Um, and so he has a whole series of of examples like this and. Um, And his argument is that, you know, that the the caregiver in all of these cases does it very intuitively in order to kind of um, share in the the affect of of the child. Um, And so I found this a really compelling model because it gives us such a precise kind of analytic vocabulary for um, describing these like very precise features that allow for affective attunement. And I think that that is really what's going on in descriptions of, um, of, of feelings and the kinds of analogies, for instance, that Wolf, um, that Wolf uh, uses to, to such great effect, but which I think we can see um, uh, more widely um, as well. I think that, uh, and, and Stern himself um, kind of says, you know, that this is something that, Um, you know, that, that happens in, in the case of uh, in the therapeutic scenario. Um, He also talks about symbolism and um, other sort of, uh, you know, early 20th century um, movements uh, in the arts that were kind of interested in sort of um, correspondences between different modes. Um, But yeah, I find this a really helpful way of, of, um, of, delimiting how it is that a particular description of a feeling might kind of match that feeling, not by saying, you know, um, I felt, uh, well, say so I don't even know what, what the counterexample would be in the case of a feeling. Um, because you know, you can't say, you can't just like name, like break down its qualities, you know, but, um, it, uh, I think this is something that kind of really allows us to understand why certain descriptions of feeling can be so compelling and feel so um, evocative. Um, And then there's, I mean, there's a whole other piece too about how this allows us to, um, I think in the phenomenology of reading, this might explain too that sense of accompaniment um, that, that one might feel, you know, in, in, recognizing something or in kind of having a feeling sort of evoked um a kind of matching feeling evoked by by a description um but it's a kind of very minimal form of accompaniment that doesn't even require like identification with a character um but is just a sort of um about this kind of this this feature of um this fact that we can perceive qualities across different, different perceptual modes.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I want to, I want to move on to your last chapter. Um, and in a, in, I'll be honest, this one was my favorite chapter. Um, it's so interesting. Um, and so kind of exciting because you take, you take everything you've said about description and what it can do, and then go right to the edge and ask, um, what happens at the limit of description? And I think what you're talking about with feeling um, is exactly what you you you're getting at with the idea that you know there are some things that feel like they you just can't describe them. you just you can't do anything with them. And you argue kind of against um history and philosophy or literary studies that it, the the limit is not at some kind of beyond that's very far away. It's actually right up next to us. The hardest and most indescribable things are often what we know best. Um, And I want to ask kind of about this and how that and how it relates to um, maybe how, you know, it's the idea that language works because it's communal and feelings are something that are so subjective that the medium of language in its um, in the fact that it exists between others. Um, it can't ever approach the pure subjectivity. Um, but there is something that you, or that can, which you find in um, deictics and indexicals. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about this idea that you draw out from James and Russell and connect it to Wolf and I get and the figure of Lily Briscoe or Clarissa Dalloway um, with There She, it, there she Was.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. This this really is about kind of the the limits of of description, um, and it's um, it. I, I'm suggesting that um, you know when we say something like, or when you read, uh, and this also came about because you know partly through just noticing the prominence of of um, indexicals in in Wolf's work, you know, when you say something like, It was this, um, like Lily Briscoe says in the lighthouse, she's looking out at, you know, the landscape and she's really frustrated because she can't paint what she sees and, you know, she says, it but it was this. Um and and there are a lot of moments like that. And the prominence of indexicals can be explained in part by the use of free and direct style. But um I think that Wolf is sort of just intuitively um uh getting at something about the about what what these particular words which are both the most precise and the most you kind know, of semantically empty um what what these words can indicate which i think is that we've reached some sort of descriptive limit so it is actually they are both the most um they are actually the the only ways to kind of say uh, the whole of the thing, you know. Um, but at the same time, they're not comprehensible to to others. Um, and so this was, you know, this this was sort uh, of as I kind of said at the beginning. This was where the project really began. And it, I I wrote this as a as an article a few years ago, and then in revising it for the book, I kind of um, realized, um, you know, in parts through the other, through the other, having worked through the other chapters that there was this other way than of, of, you could take kind of the the argument a step further about the limit of description and say, well, actually, because, you know, the, in the article version, I read just really emphasize the, um, the mutual incomprehensibility of, you know, my, this, and your, this, which is something that Russell really insists on. Um, but I think that it also really issues a kind of invitation, you know, to the reader um, and to others to um, to uh, sort of um, you know to to kind of collectively adjudicate the 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 referent of of this or the scope of this in a lot of ways. So I think it's both actually a way to um, Register the sort of atomization of of modernity and the kind of like you know in each each individual as a monad you know in in her own locked room um, unable to communicate with others um, and which you know for for Lukac and for other Marxist critics is is one of the one of the reasons why modernism is bad um, I think it's a way so I think the use of of indexicals and You know the kind of um, the inescapability and the ending at at something like it was this, or the ending of this Mrs. Dalloway. You know, for there she was. um, The the moments like that are um, both a way to register the kind of atomization, the alienation of modernity, and to kind of dissolve that sort of atomization at in in the same instant, because it it isn't. It is kind of you know like sort of you know something like pure subjectivity because you know you my this is your is you can't have access to my this and i can't have access to your this but by that by that same token they kind of dissolve and you know in the course of reading um when you read for there she was um you know you you are sort of invited to kind of um fill in or to sort of you know um uh it, it kind of leaches out towards something that isn't determinate, you know, what exactly that means for there she was, it reaches out towards something that isn't um, determinate um, or that doesn't operate according to a, a determinate concept. So it's, I think it's both a kind of, a, it's it's like the apotheosis of kind of the, you know, the, the monad in a room and its dissolution um, in, in the same, uh, in the same instant. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that that's what's that—that's one of the things that you know also makes for me Wolf such a compelling um, kind of theorist. Uh, you know, not explicitly so, but a kind of theorist of of description. In that, I think she's really um, kind of finding all of these really inventive ways to uh, describe feeling, but then also finding these really inventive and, and incredibly, for me at least, you know, uh, compelling ways of describing the limits of description um, or making a foregrounding the the limits um, of description.
1: Yeah, that chapter is, is wonderful and really, really does something to, to ask us questions that I think take us really far beyond, um, you know, anything that I've thought before and it gives you a whole different idea of what um, what a novel can do um, as an affective kind of object or something that can cue us into the lives of others when you know you can't, I know I can never be in someone else's mind, but um, something happens in those deictics and those indexicals that takes us towards the other. Um, oh, well, I have one final question um, and that is, um, what are you thinking about now? what is what's on your what's on your mind and um, do you have anything that you're you know working towards or can you share anything about what any other projects or what you're thinking of going into the future?
0: Yeah, um, well, I've been working on a couple of essays um, right now and the uh, my thoughts about a second project are still so tentative that I won't I won't mention them but the the <laughs> essays I'm uh, I've just finished an essay. I'm Proust in the weather um, which has been a long-standing interest um, in thinking about the weather um, and this is kind of related to to atmosphere um, and i'm I'm right now starting um, an essay on the detail um, and that's kind of thinking about uh, responding to Naomi Shore's book um, reading in detail but thinking about it Um uh, in terms of more contemporary um, fiction, and um, you know, the detail sort of encodes this problem of part and whole, um, and of kind of um, singularity, or a, rather of particularity and kind of typification. You know, again, if you think of descriptions like per specific details um, uh, uh, are often mentioned in order to kind of, um, you know, it's particularizing, you know, it helps us to see like this room or this person, but it also places them as being of that kind, you know, that kind of person or that kind of room. Um, so, um, yeah, so I'm working on on something on, on the detail now, and I'll, I'm teaching a grad seminar actually on the detail um, this spring, uh, which I'm finalizing the syllabus for. So um, those are the the things that are immediately on the docket.
1: Well, those sound great. Um, So that's the end of our interview. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for talking. Um, And for everyone listening, that once again, this book is called Strange Likeness, Description and the Modernist Novel by Dora Zhang. And it's out by um, the University of Chicago Press. And I hope, I really hope that you go out and get it and read it. It's such a such a great, such a great read and such an interesting, um, provocation of all these questions that surround modernism that we don't typically think of as going into that genre.
0: Thanks so much for, uh, for having me I really enjoyed this, this conversation.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, and thank you for listening to this interview and I, I hope you continue to listen to the new books in literary studies on the new books network.